Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Before our episode, we want to thank a couple of our Patreon sponsors. This week, we want to thank Aaron, Kate, Chandrika, Allison, Catherine, and Anna. We really appreciate you and everyone else who has gone to patreon.com slash sartorialgeek to help keep this little community going. Thank you so much, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Karen Hallian. Karen Hallian is an incredible illustrator who creates all kinds of whimsical art of our pop culture favorites and some real-life heroes. If you go to karenhallian.com, you can find all the places to shop, all the places to follow her online, and a link to my personal favorite, her Patreon. I've been a Patreon supporter for over a year, and my favorite thing is that she sends out coloring book pages of her illustrations, which if, like me, you love de-stressing with a little nerdy coloring, this is the perfect place for you. Head to karenhallian.com to check her out right now. Hey, welcome to the Sartorial Geek Podcast. I'm Jordan today, and today I am here with Omar Morales. Hello, how are you? Hey, Jordan. What's up? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. We've been like talking to some people working on comics, which is super cool. And you are also a person working on like a couple different comics projects. Yeah, you know, I started doing comics about mm, maybe 10, 12 years ago. You know, I just started with a one shot. Uh, it was about a character called Crusader, right? And he was like this like uh, secret hitman for the Pope, right? So if like the Pope had his own personal hitman, that's what he was. And he had this like brown robe and like he had all these like ancient relics of the church that he used as like his weapons. And I did it as a one shot. I took it to uh, WonderCon in San Francisco and it did really well. So I was encouraged and, and kept doing more stories and I built it out into a full graphic novel. And that was like my first experience where right? I didn't know what I was doing, but it was a great experience because then I learned everything everything about the production process of making a comic so that, you know, the next time I was, you know, making comics, I already had been around the block once and uh, understood everything that it takes, which is quite a bit, right? If you think about it, if you're the owner of the story, you're not only the writer, but you're like the contract negotiator, right? To go out and hire an artist and then a colorist and then a letterer. And then in my case, I also hire like a graphic design guy. And then I also have like a pre-press guy that gets all the files ready for printing. So I'm, I'm paying like, you know, five people at least. So you have to be kind of a business person too. And then there's all the marketing, right? And advertising and then the PR like we're doing now, right? Spokesperson for my projects. And then there's like negotiating with conventions and getting tables and booths, so, you know, obviously outside of COVID time. But uh, yeah, it's quite a bit, right? So because of all that and having a full-time job and a family, I tend to do one project probably like every five years in terms of my own graphic novels. Now, I also do anthologies where I'll contribute like a short story to a, a larger project that's, you know, a book full of, of short stories. So that kind of keeps me busy in between my own projects. So yeah, that's kind of like my origin story in terms of how I got into comics. And uh, along the way with that first project with Crusader, just because nobody knew me, right? And I was such an unknown newbie. And, you know, I, you could probably still say that I am, but <laughs> I wanted to do something big, right? To do, do a big splash to enter the comic book market and the indie scene. So what I did is I made a jumbo gigantic version of Crusader to break the Guinness World Record for largest comic book published. And I did that in 2014. 
I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I found a local printer here in the East Bay near my home in uh, uh, Pleasanton, California, and they were able to do it for me. So it's like poster size, right? It's two feet wide by three feet tall, and it's, you know, stapled along the spine, and it's an actual book that you can read. It's got pages, right? A lot of people look at it and they think, oh, that's just the poster. I'm like, no, this is bagged and boarded. This is a full 26 page book or 28. That's amazing. (laughs) Including the covers. So I did that in 2014, broke the record and uh, got a lot of international publicity right off the bat with my very first book. And it kind of, you know, put my name out there. So that was a lot of fun. I love that idea too. That's so wild. (laughs) Like, What a great way to do that. Yeah, it was fun. And you know, the record's been broken twice since. So the record I broke was for a Kiss comic. It was like the band Kiss that had made a comic and it was like black and white. I beat the Kiss comic by like two inches on the sides and like three inches up and down. And then a Brazilian comics publisher came in maybe five years after me in 2019 and beat my record just by a hair, like by a few centimeters <laughs> width and, and height. That's so annoying. <laughs> and, no, it was bound to happen. And then more recently, yeah. it got broken again. And I can't remember the publisher. I want to say it was an American publisher that broke it. And I think it was also a black and white comic. So where I think I've got everybody beat is mine was full color right? Uh, It had a barcode on the back. You know, I'd made like around 100 copies and sold them mostly to comic shops that wanted it as a novelty item. And uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's still on display at Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash in Red Bank, New Jersey. The the guys there, Ming and Mike are great. These were the guys that were on uh, AMC TV's Comic Book Men. Yeah, so that shop there in New Jersey, which is world famous, and they've always been great to me, and they've had me on their podcast and stuff. And so when, when I made the record, they were like, yeah, send us a copy. We'll, we'll throw it up on display. And then they moved recently, like within the last month or two. They moved just within the same block. I think they moved like just a few doors down to get a bigger retail space. So I don't know if uh, my Guinness World Record book made the move or if maybe they mothballed it and put it in storage, but it was there for many years, I can tell you that. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I can't believe you printed a hundred. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, that was a requirement from Guinness is that it had to be commercially available, right? So I had to make them available for sale. And I did that through my website. And then I also did it at conventions. That's where really where I unloaded most of my copies is at conventions because at shows, right, there are retailers, comic book retailers there that have booths and uh, eventually they'd see my book and they'd be like, hey, I'd love to have a copy of this for the store. And, uh, you know, I gave them all deals, right? I didn't charge them full price. I didn't certainly didn't charge them what it cost me to print. So I gave them deals and then, and that was good for me, right? To publicize myself inside their stores. And then, you know, most of them would carry, agree to carry my graphic novel. It was like 156 page graphic novel, hardcover. So that was kind of my way in. And I just saw that as like a table stakes, right? An ante into the game to get my name out there. So it was worth the expense for me. And uh, yeah, that was a ton of fun. I have never heard of anything like that. And I love it so much. And I'm glad you said at the beginning too, I feel like lots of people who are new to the industry don't necessarily realize like when you write comics, it is not just sitting down and writing a script. It's all the things you talked about, unless you hire out a team, but that's very expensive, especially if you're just starting. So I think it is really important to, to you know talk about that. Like you have to do a lot to get a comic out. Yeah, you wear all the hats, right? Like you are 
an artist in your own right as a writer, right? It's a form of art. And then you have to be a business person and then you have to, you know, be a marketer and an advertiser. I, you know what I, I call indie comics guys, modern day carnival barkers, right? We're all standing yeah. on the corner with our megaphone standing on our crate, yelling for attention in a sea of other carnival barkers, all vying for attention on social media, at conventions, you know, with our websites. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think it's like, you know, competitive or crowded, but really the community's pretty cool, right? The, most people, they all support each other, right? Like if I do another Kickstarter, I know that the bulk of my audience is going to be people that are just like me that create their own books and want to support me. And I know I certainly do. I think I've supported like 175 Kickstarters in the last you know, I don't know how many years, five, six years. And the way I do it is I just do small pledges so that I can do a lot of support for lots of different projects. So rather than blow a hundred bucks on one project, I'd rather spend five bucks and do 20 different projects from guys that I know online that are struggling and hustling and carnival barking to get pledges and to get eyes on their book. And so with a small pledge, what I like to do too is say, hey, I need to spread my funds around, but what I'm going to do is I'll retweet you or I'll, I'll reshare your post and make sure that uh, I help you get eyeballs on this. So <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I feel like also, not everyone necessarily thinks about that. Like, I think about that in the same way, too, where, like, when you're asking for people to support you, it is wonderful to also be giving back. And, like, sometimes I do look at Kickstarters when people have them and see, like, how many other projects they've backed. And it means a lot when someone has backed other projects in their network because that means they care. So, I think that's like a really, really good point and a way to do it you know, without spending a million dollars, you can just do smaller pledges and then do like social posts. That's such a good point. Yeah, I love uh, uh, supporting the community. And uh, hopefully someday they support me back if I do another Kickstarter. But my plan for now, though, is with my next project called Major Tomas. It's about a, a Latino astronaut, right, who starts off as an immigrant farm boy. And he, he dreams of being a NASA astronaut. And uh, he achieves that dream. And on his first mission, he, he gets lost in space, right? He's like the first human to launch into hyperspace on a very important mission to find like another Earth, right? Another planet that's viable for humanity to colonize someday. And he gets lost in space. I'm starting production on that book in like two weeks with uh, a very, very talented artist, a good friend of mine who's uh, he's from Costa Rica. And the colorist is also going to be from Costa Rica. And then I've got a local U.S. Uh, letter. The whole team is going to be Latinos, right? We wanted to, to do this together to be authentic, right? And so for art, we have Serge Acuna. And then on colors, we have Raul Angulo. And then for letters, we have Taylor Esposito, who's been around the business for a while. And he's done a lot of books for major publishers, DC, Marvel, etc. So if I can't come to terms with a publisher, then I'll end up just kickstarting that one myself so that I can do it exactly how I want to do it. But, you know, right now it's very early stages and pitching. And so far I've got one publisher interested that, that I'm having dialogue with. Very early dialogue, but we'll see where it goes. It's not automatic, right? Just because they show interest, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a done deal. And in fact, they could they could ask you to make changes or even maybe even change some of your artwork team, which I kind of don't want to do. So we'll see where that goes. And who knows, I might be back banging on the door asking for pledges with Kickstarter for that project in a year or two. That totally makes sense, especially you do have to make those decisions as a creator, like what 
you know, changes you're willing to make and what you're not. And so I think Kickstarter is a really wonderful platform for creators who want to make exactly what they want to make. So I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, there's trade-offs, right? Like with doing it yourself and doing it to your own specifications, you have the full control of the story, the art team, the marketing, everything. But then, you know, your reach isn't as big and you're out there hustling for pledges and asking people to put money into it. Versus, you know, if you have a publisher doing it for you, then they're paying for the printing and, you know, they'll do some of the marketing, not all of it. I mean, you're still responsible for pushing your own book, even if you're getting published. But, you know, this is one of the reasons I like Scout Comics is they are firm believers in go ahead and kickstart your book first. Do it how you want, you know, build up your audience and, you know, your engagement with the community and then come to us after your Kickstarter and then we can publish it too. That's where I'm at now with the Lunar Ladies, right? I published it myself under the title of Moon Girl because Moon Girl is a public domain character that's been around for, since like late 1940s from EC Comics. Red 5 Comics also did a version of it like 20 years ago of that character. And then Marvel now is also doing their version of, of Moon Girl. So I did that as a Kickstarter and it's a fun little retro Golden Age style book with like ray guns and laser rays and like, you know, the kind of that old fashioned storytelling. And I hired a, a colorist, Paula Goulart from Brazil, who stained the pages and she made them look faded and yellowed like the pages were wow. like 100 years old. <laughs> she did a phenomenal job. That's so cool. Yeah. And so after I was done with the Kickstarter and basically sold out my palette of books, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to do this as single issues? Because I packaged it together as a graphic novel. Uh, you know, it was like a 88 pages hardcover and it had a little bonus uh, story in the back, like an origin story. And uh, I figured, well, wouldn't it be cool to do this as single issues? So let me see if Scout Comics is interested. And they were, you know, because I know Charlie, the publisher, you know, know him from online, you know, from social media. And he was a supporter of the Moon Girl Kickstarter campaign. And then I, in turn, uh, backed his project, White Ash, and we cross-promoted each other. So fast forward a couple of years, you know, I pitched it and uh, Charlie agreed that, you know, I was the type of guy that they wanted at Scout Comics as a creator. And uh, he was familiar with the book already, having backed it. And so... Yeah, we decided to do it together. We changed the title to The Lunar Ladies. That way there would be no confusion with the Marvel version. And because it's a public domain character, it's okay for you know multiple versions of the same character to exist in the multiverse, so to speak. They just got to be different from each other, right? Like if I wanted to do a story about Thor or Hercules, I could. I would just have to do it different than how Marvel does it to make it different. So yeah, The Lunar Ladies is in Diamond Previews right now. You can pre-order issue number one to your local comic book store with order number May 211676. And they can pre-order it for you and have it ready for you. It hits in, I think it's July. Yeah, so we're in May right now and it's a two-month lead time. So yeah, you can order issue number one right now and it'll be in your shop in July with the rest of the, uh, the Scout comics that are soliciting this month. So it'll be three issues, a three-issue miniseries. The first issue, the cover is by Renee DeLiz, and she's awesome. She did uh, Legend of Wonder Woman for DC, which was a hugely successful book. 
So she did the cover for number one. Number two is a local artist, Molly Satterwaite. She's uh, actually a neighbor of mine who lives just a few blocks away. And isn't this crazy? I had no idea she lived in the same town when I solicited her to do the cover art. I reached out to her on Instagram. I love that. <laughs> I reached out to her on Instagram and I was like, hey, can you do this book? And then when we were doing the contracts and stuff, I'm like, wait a minute, this lady lives in my hometown and like literally like just a few blocks down around the corner. <laughs> so That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's just like what a small world. And then cover number three is by a friend of mine named uh, Matt Harding, who also did a great job. And all the covers are very different stylistically. And then he, Matt also did a variant cover for number one, which features the the villain who's like a mad scientist lady. But yeah, let's get into some of your questions about the Lunar Ladies and what the story's about and see where we go with it. Yeah, I guess... If anyone doesn't know the public domain character, like, can you tell us just a little bit about your main character? Yeah, so Moon Girl, her name is uh, Claire DeLooney, and she is like this heiress, right? A princess from the moon, right? And so the story goes that like a million years ago on the moon, there was this advanced society of women that lived on the moon, and they were all like these like Amazonian warrior women. And uh, the queen had possession of this like magical moonstone necklace, which made her like invincible, right? It made her super strong and like super powerful and she could never be defeated. And it was very much a a kind of a two-dimensional type of character and storytelling from back in like the 1940s. It was basically a ripoff of Wonder Woman, right? This was DC Comics version of Wonder Woman, like this Amazonian woman with super strength and speed and whatever. So she, the princess, inherits the moonstone necklace and then she comes to Earth. And I don't know if she's immortal, but she could live like a really long time. Kind of like Wonder Woman, right? And so her story picks up in the 1940s on Earth where she's, you know, punching out bad guys in the back alley, you know, bank robbers and goons and thugs that, that run the streets of New York or whatever. And uh, she has this like boyfriend who's always like being captured and she has to go rescue him. So (laughs) that was kind of a a funny thing from the original version uh, where they reverse the roles where she's not the damsel in distress, but her, her boyfriend is like, you know, the dude in distress and she has to go rescue him. So what I did is I wanted to do the origin story of her, but as a little girl, like a five year old girl. And so what I did is instead of having her come to Earth when it's like the 1940s, I had her come to Earth like in prehistoric times. I love that. So the queen in my story has this beef with this mad scientist who her thing is I want to create men and I want to have men live on the moon with us in our utopian society of like high tech space aged women. And the queen's like, no, like if you bring in men, it'll destroy our society. And so they have this big conflict. The queen takes the moon necklace, gives it to her young daughter, and then her lover and her wife flee to Earth with the little girl and the necklace. And so the villain finds out and chases them to Earth, and it's prehistoric Earth. So there's all these, like, you know, mastodons and, like, saber-toothed tigers roaming around the Earth, and there's cave people. And so part of the story is in between the chapters, right? Because there's it's three issues, or in the graphic novel, it's three acts, right? So in between the stories, I have this like evolving cave painting where at the end of issue one, we see a crude cave painting that the cave people are drawing of Moon Girl and her two mommies. And then in the second one, they add to the cave painting where they draw like the moon above her head. And then we see the necklace with all this like vibrant energy coming out of it. That was their interpretation of this magical necklace. And then in like the final cave painting, you see a fully detailed realized drawing with like animals and like 
people with spears and it's like a full-on elaborate thing. And that was kind of my way of telling a story within a story where like the cave people also had their comic of Moon Girl, right? That they painted up on up on this cave wall. And so, you know, I don't want to spoil the story, but there's this massive conflict between the mad scientist who ends up successfully cloning men. And she has like this army of clone boys. She calls them the big boys. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. And they look like the mascot from this old burger diner in California called Bob's Big Boy. That's where it comes from, right? <laughs> so a lot of people think that like, oh, the big boys look like Astro Boy. And they kind of do, right? But I'm like, actually, no, it's not based on Astro Boy. It's based on the mascot for Bob's Big Boy Burgers. <laughs> and that's what they look like. That's so great. Yeah. And they're all kind of creepy because they have these like angry eyes, but they have this like fake plastic smile. And uh, they're super creepy looking. Anyway, so the mad scientist chases them to Earth with her army of clone boys, the big boys. And so the queen and her wife and the daughter enlist like the local cave people. And then they also enlist like animals, right? Like the moon girl with her necklace is able to communicate with animals telepathically. And so she gets like the saber-toothed tigers and the mastodons and the giant sloths to help join their ragtag army of, you know, space women and cave people and animals to fight against the mad scientist and her army of clones. And it's very Buck Rogers, ray guns, laser rays, very old-fashioned kind of storytelling with thought bubbles, right? And visual gags like somebody slipping on a banana peel. So I wanted to capture that like <laughs> 1940s style of book. But also do like modern pacing where it's only like four or five panels per page versus like the golden age where you, you might have had nine or 12 panels, you know, on a page. And the, like it's super crowded with like too much dialogue and too many captions. This one's more fluid and it moves quickly like a modern comic, but it looks old with the, the color work that Paula did staining and fading, you know, the pages so they look 100 years old. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the summary on the Lunar Ladies, right? Coming from Scout Comics, order number May 211-676, order it up, see if you like issue number one, and if you do, I'm grateful to you, and then hopefully you, you buy uh, issues two and three as well. Is it still available like together as a graphic novel too, or is that all sold out? I do have some available as a graphic novel. It's a hardcover, and it has like a bonus story at the end that's like eight pages, which is an origin story. And then it has also the all the alternate covers as like pinups in the back of the book. And it's available from my website, theforcemedia.com. I think I sell it for like 14 bucks plus shipping. So it might be like 17 bucks altogether. And so, yeah, I do have some of the graphic novels still available. Not many. I'm pretty much dwindled down to not many left. But uh, if you'd rather have it as a full-on graphic novel, you can order it from me on theforcemedia.com. But I'd encourage people to check it out as a single issue, right? It's less of a commitment at $3.99 just to see if you like issue number one. But then I think Scout also will collect it as a trade, you know, probably next year. If issue one drops in July, then issue two drops probably September and then the final issue in December. So probably in 2022, they'll do a collected version. And in that collected version, I really hope that they include these like little cave painting chapter breaks that I included in my version, as well as like the bonus story and the pinups. Like I really hope they do the same kind of package that I did. Uh, but it's really up to them. They don't have to, but uh, I'd really dig it if they did. I think the reader gets more of a full experience with all those extras built into it. I mean, it sounds really cool. So I hope they would too, because the I think the cave drawings is a, a really cool touch. 
Yeah, I really had fun with that. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a huge nerd for the History Channel show Ancient Aliens. Nice. (laughs) I'm a big fan of that show. And their whole MO is, yes, aliens and sophisticated societies have been visiting the Earth for millions of years, and there's artifacts, and there's proof, and there's cave paintings. So that's where I kind of got some of that flavor and language for this story. So I loaded my story with lots of Easter eggs for ancient aliens fans, because there are things they talk about in that show that I put into the book very subtly, like as background things or as like little Easter eggs that uh, ancient aliens fans will for sure recognize and enjoy and probably get a kick out of, because there's some things in there that I don't really explain, right? It's just there. And it's like an ancient aliens fan will totally pick up on it versus your average person may not. Right. And that's okay with me. Right. It was like my little secret coded wink and nod to ancient aliens fans, which I'm one of. So I love that. (laughs) That's kind of an unexpected Easter egg, but that's great. Yes, totally. Like it's so like a niche off of a niche off of a niche. But, you know, hey, it's my book and I had fun doing it and retelling the story of Moon Girl in my own way. So she's not an adult like she is in the EC Comics version or the Red Five version. She's a kid. Marvel also has chosen to do her as a kid. I think in their version, she's like an African-American girl with classes and she's like super smart. And in my version, she's more Asian. She styles herself with like an Asian style headdress and suit. And it's a very diverse book. I will say that, right? Like the one mommy is blonde. The other mommy's redhead. There's a bad scientist. And then there's a good scientist and the good scientist is Latina and she comes up big in act three. Like she has her moment where she has her come up and a very breakthrough moment for her. And then there's also a character who's like, she's the head of security on the moon. She's like French Creole, right? She speaks with this really cool French accent. And uh, it was such a, a nice touch to have so many diverse types of uh, women characters in the book. And then the the men are just these like stooges, right? They're these cardboard cutouts called the big boys (laughs) who are just like (laughs) these kind of mono, you know, monotone clones that don't really have a mind of their own. But even in the end, they get their comeuppance too. And uh, they're able to kind of break free from the the shackles of the, the mad scientists. So it's really cool. I really hope people check it out. If you want something light and fun, that's not, you know, super heavy, that's like a lot of pew pew, this book will be perfect for you. And I'd recommend it too for like middle grade kids. If you're like have, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders at home, this book is good for them all the way up to adult readers. But I wouldn't recommend it for kids, you know, under 10. It might be a little, a little bit too hard to understand, but it's got great visuals and some great visual gags. So even if uh, a kid doesn't know how to read, they could still flip through it and kind of get the gist of the story. Awesome. I know you said how to pre-order it, but where or how to order it, where should people follow you online to like know about upcoming projects and know all the things you're working on? Oh, yeah. Perfect. So my website kind of houses links to all of my social media, right? So theforcemedia.com and it'll link to my Twitter, which is at the Crusader. So T-H-E-C-R-U-Z-A-D-E-R. And I use a very similar handle pretty much on all my social medias. Like on Instagram, I think I'm the underscore crusader. So very similar to my Twitter handle. But yeah, my website has links to all of them, right? My YouTube, my Tumblr, my even my LinkedIn, I think is on there uh, if people want to connect with me professionally. But yeah, Twitter is really my main method of uh, social media communication. So at the Crusader, look me up. It's the same name as uh, my first book, which was the, the Guinness World Record Project. 
That's awesome. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes too. So people can find it. If they forget, they can just check out the show notes for this episode. Awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. So nice to meet you. I'm so excited for these projects. They sound great. Oh, thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait to link to the show and retweet your future shows as I'm sure you'll have some more scout creators on your show. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. If you want to hear more like this, you can subscribe to the Sartorial Geek Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or a review or head to patreon.com slash sartorialgeek. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye.